going to read two passages of Scripture this morning. We'll begin with the one that's in the bulletin, Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they, not, they cannot do evil. Neither also it is in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. But they are all together brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder. Blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors, in the time of their visitation they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
Gather up thy wares out of the land, O inhabitant of the fortress, for thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once, and will distress them that they may find it so. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said, Truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. My tabernacle is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me, and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains, for the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the brute is come, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of dragons. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him and made his habitation desolate. One more passage of Scripture I'd like to read out of the Psalms. Psalm 49. Psalm 49. You notice that this psalm also refers to the idolater as a brutish man. The word that we would probably use instead of brutish is stupid. It's a very powerful word that's used then and here. Psalm 49, hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, being in honor, abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. 
and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. We read that far in God's holy word and now read the portion of the catechism that we consider this morning. Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. Our image is then not at all to be made. God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, Though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught, not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I wish to make a couple of short points by way of introduction. The first is, once again, the Reformed view of Preaching the law of God is brought to light. And that Reformed view is not that preaching the law or preaching on the law is opposed to the preaching of the gospel, and they cannot be mingled in any way. They are like oil and water but rather it is the preaching of the Word. And notice also the Reformed view is that this preaching of the Word is brought up in connection now with the second commandment. It is in the explanation of the second commandment, a law, that the Reformed make our confession that we are taught by God, not from images and through idolatry, but the preaching, the lively preaching of the Word. That's important. We see also that we are taught 
in the preaching of the Word of God, which is the preaching of His commandments, not only, it is not limited to instruction as to our sin and misery. That is a part of it. But it also sets forth for us the way we live. Indeed, the way we must live as the children of God. It sets forth the way the children of God actually live in their life. That's point one. The second point that I want to make is one that explains the perspective somewhat of the sermon this morning. There are a bunch of different ways, primarily two, but different ways in which one can preach on or look at the second commandment. One is the perspective of Lord's Day 35. It's not the only perspective of Lord's Day 35, which is why we're not limited to this perspective, but it is a major part of this Lord's Day, which is one can look at the second commandment and keeping it or violating it from the perspective of worship, especially corporate worship. That is, the second commandment has to do with how we worship God. Not so much who we worship, but how we worship. And certainly this is an important perspective. The Catechism brings that out. Notice that it, in explaining, talks about what God requires in terms of worshiping Him in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. We call that the regular principle. And it's basically explained here. It's why the subject of images comes up and images in the churches and what we're taught in the church. So, that's one perspective, a major perspective, in fact, of this Lord's Day and the Second Commandment. The Christian church today, even the Reformed Christian church today, is ignoring this commandment to its peril. The churches today are busy worshiping God however they see fit and consider it proper and good. And when God looks down from heaven, all He sees is idolatry. Now, that's not the perspective we're going to look at this commandment from so much today. We're going to look at it from the perspective of our entire life. <clears throat> in other words, not so much from the perspective of what's going on in the Old Testament in the temple of God and in Jerusalem, but what was going on in the life of the children of Israel from day to day, from hour to hour, from year to year and so also with us. In other words, how does this commandment speak to not our life on Sunday, but our life the other six days of the week? And of course, there is a connection, which we hope you will see. But that's the perspective we're really going to take this morning, and we're going to do so under three points. We're going to have as our theme, worshiping no images, worshiping no images, and then the great wickedness or evil that that is. Then secondly, we're going to look at the divine must. We're going to look at the commandment, the law itself. Why is there that must? And then lastly, the only possibility. What's the only possibility of worshiping no images?
when in the first point I speak of the great evil, have in mind two things. First of all, of course, we're speaking about violation of the commandment itself, the sin. The sin, of course, is idolatry. And we're going to look at the greatness of that sin from two different perspectives or angles. The first is the greatness of that sin as to its moral wickedness. How does God view this sin? Does God view this sin the same way that we often view this sin? How does God judge this sin? How does He see it? And we're going to see that God views it as a great, great evil. But there's another way, too, that we can look at the greatness of the evil, and that's from the perspective of its prevalence. Is this a sin that we find only out in the world? Is this the sin that we, we have to look for in order to find? Is this, is this something that when we look in our hearts, we got to really search and look and look and look before we, we say, oh yeah, I, I see some idolatry, or maybe we, we look at it as a sin where we really aren't guilty of it at all. It's, it's out there. It's in the other churches, and it's out there in the world, but not in me. And we're going to see that that's not true. This is a great sin in that it is prevalent, has always been prevalent. It is. We hope to see the great besetting sin of the people of God. First of all, with regard to the sin itself, to understand the greatness of the sin, we have to go back to the previous Lord's Day and see how it's defined. You see, we come up with our own definitions of idolatry. What is idolatry? And our answer is, well, it's what those Buddhists over there in Asia do. They, they actually make idols and they put them in their temples of worship and they have them in their homes. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of some form that man has made that he says is his God and most frequently it is the name of another God. But that's not true. That's far from the truth. And we're not going to understand the greatness of the sin either as to how God judges it or its prevalence without understanding what it is. So let's go back. What is idolatry? Because that's the second commandment. Making images is to make an idol. Idolatry is to worship that idol, to worship that image. So what is it? It is instead of, instead of to replace God with an entirely different God, this is indeed what the Buddhists do, the Hindus do, this is what the God of Islam does, replaces God instead of or besides. That is, to place a God alongside of the one true God. To have an additional God or gods beside our God. 
It is a form of idolatry, therefore, to have any representation of God even and say, well, this is God. To show that, simply look at the condemnation of the Reformed faith upon the Mass. Our controversy and condemnation of the Roman Catholic Mass isn't a war of words. It isn't even about good or bad theology. But rather this, the theology is bad because it is idolatry to say that the bread and the wine is Christ, is Christ physically, so that by eating the bread one eats Christ, one and all, is idolatry. It is to worship the bread and the wine. That's to make a God in addition to God. The one true God is in heaven. And I've just made one there on the table. And you can say to yourself, well, that seems like a minor error, but it explains why, in part, that church is filled with idols. Why, when the Reformed broke away from that church or were cast out, it was a church wholly given over to idolatry. Idols were everywhere if one knows how to look. So, instead of or besides, notice that one true God, the one true God, not as I see Him, or I form Him, or I think of Him, but the one true God who has manifested Himself in His Word. This is why we look at Scripture, and it's important that we look at Scripture the way we do, as the infallible, inspired Word of God. Every word of Scripture is important. Every word of Scripture is infallible. Every word of Scripture comes from God's own mouth. And the reason that we take that position is not simply because the Scripture says so, because it is the Word of God that alone manifests God, that reveals Him to us. So that has to do with idolatry. When we start changing the Word to fit our own conceptions, then we make an idol. So it is to worship that one true God, or idolatry is to contrive or have any, any other object, any other thing in which men place their trust. Now, we have to examine ourselves. You and I have to take a spiritual walk through our lives and through our homes and examine whether we worship idols or not. The answer, of course, is we do. We do. And I suppose all of us here might begrudgingly admit that. But then we really haven't repented of our sin. We haven't really confessed our sin. We need to see 
that we are idolaters at our heart and our core. What we need to do when we walk through our homes and our lives spiritually is to look at them and judge them and see them, not with men's eyes, not with the eyes that we were given in our birth, not to judge according the way men judge or even churches judge. Because you see, part of our idolatry is and part of the utter wickedness of it is that the idolater, when he looks at his idols, doesn't see them as idols. His idols are his gods. It's who he worships. To call them idols is resisted. If you come to me or I come to you and say you're worshiping an idol, brother, we, we are instantly going to say, well, no, that's not true. Oh, no. In other words, when we look at our own lives and we look at our lives with an idolatrous heart, we're not going to find them. Maybe here or there a little bit. But if we look at our hearts and we look at our lives and we look at our actions, how God sees them, and remember now that God demands everything from you. God has laid claim on you and all of you. When God looks at you, He says, you don't have anything. You don't own anything. There's nothing that is yours. It's all mine. I gave you whatever you have, including your life. And it's all mine. I lay claim to it. And let's not forget that His claim with regard to us is even greater because He bought us with His own blood in His own Son. So, there's even a greater ownership if we may speak that way. And now let's look. Now, one of the ways that we excuse our idolatry is we, we say to ourselves, well, God can have me and my life and my heart on Sunday. And I, I recognize that what we do on Sunday and how we worship isn't left up to us. I'm thankful that I'm in a church. I'm thankful I've been taught that our liturgy here isn't just something the elders dreamed up or is a long tradition. But these are the things. These are the elements that God says, this is how you worship me. When you come together for worship, the, the, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be preaching my word as the chief means of grace and, and praying and giving of your offerings and other such things. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to listen to praise bands. And we're not here to even praise ourselves in song. We're, we're here to worship God in spirit and in truth. I recognize that. But our problem is that we think that God really doesn't have claim on us really even the rest of the day want to know our idolatry, let's just simply look at a Sunday once and how we observe it. Not only do we struggle in worship, it's not true that we come to worship and there's no idols in here. You may think there's no idols because you don't see them on the table of the Lord and you don't see them in the stained glass windows and you don't see them on the walls of the church. You may say to yourself, there's no idols here because there's no false doctrine either. The, the minister isn't preaching a false god. There's no idols here. Yes, there are. You brought them all in with you. They're in your heart. And those idols are all exposed if you simply 
ask yourself, did you think of anything beside God in the hour that we've been here? Has any of your mind strayed to what's going to go on tomorrow? Or thought about the ball game yesterday? Or how Covenant's doing in the tournaments? Your mind hasn't gone to maybe your health or your strength or your mind hasn't wandered to think about the brother or sister in the pew or the announcement that was made or any other such What is that? What is that? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's to give your heart and your mind and your soul in some way to another besides God. You say, just, well, it's brief. It, I, I can't help it. No, but it's idolatry, you see. And then when we leave this place, ah, now that time's mine. You see, the greatness of the sin is that we, we can't even dedicate Sunday to God. We, we point at other churches and we say, look, they only, they only come to church once. They can't even come to church twice. Look at, look at that. And, and there's truth to the fact that one of the reasons for that is the churches are filled with idolatry. Why is it that people can't even come to church twice on a Sunday? And the answer is idolatry. The church has made idols of its family and out of recreation and out of sports and ball games and out of their own time and money. That's one reason. The other reason is they don't have a God worth serving twice on Sunday. If you examine why it is that people are wholly given over to idols, part of the problem is the idol that's actually being worshipped is the one being preached, and the God that's being preached is a helpless God. Why would you give yourself to that God? Maybe once on Sunday. And then after that, it's all me. But we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Even if we say Sunday's for napping, that, that's to satisfy our own flesh. And then, and then when confronted, then we, we make it a whole matter of legalism. What are you, say, you saying I can't do this and I can't do that? Oh, come on. Let's just talk about the heart once. Let's talk about the heart. It isn't about matter of what you're doing so much. It's what your heart is. And is what you're doing conducive to drawing your heart to God. But let's, let's, let's go beyond church now. Let's go to the other six days of the week that God says we're not together to worship, but He still lays claim on your life and your heart. Let's look at that vast amount of time and let's make some comparisons once. How much money do you spend on yourself? And let's compare that now to how much you give to God. Well, we, we give a lot to God, but we give a far greater amount to ourselves. And if we're called out, then we, 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 we say, well, we, we don't have to be poor. No. But let's look at your heart. Let's look at my heart. Really, what, what, do, we, what do we work for? We work for money. And what do we want the money for? To buy things. How much time do you spend on Amazon.com as opposed to, say, reading God's Word? You know the answer to that one. What's the first thing you do in the morning? Is the first thing in the morning that you have prayer with God? 
I'm not saying now a whole dedicated time, but do your thoughts automatically go to God and thank Him for giving you a new day and asking His blessing upon your work in that day, or is it off to work? Get up, jump in the truck, and take off. What is that? Idolatry. What, what do you look at the most? I think we all know the answer to that question. It's a screen of some kind. It's a phone screen or a computer screen. That is the bulk of our time now. And if it's not that, it's a TV screen. Do you ever look at those things as idols? Oh, of course not. They're not, they're not idols. Of course. Of course. We, we, we got to have some time to communicate. We're just communicating. That's why we need, we need Facebook and we need Instagram and we need all these things. And we got to check our emails and, and communications because we, you know, we do communicate and we got to know what's going on. No. It's idolatry. Much of it is idolatry. We worship those devices. We can't hardly sit down without pulling them out of our pocket. And then we, and then we point at the Buddhists and say, look at those, look at those people. They got, they got idols on the street corner and they got them in the churches. Oh. Now, we carry them around in our pocket. There's members that even have to check their screens in church. After all, I've got to see what my fantasy football players are doing today. Hmm? And then the church is going to have a special service. It's going to have a lecture. Maybe, maybe the elders are called the church together for some instruction. It's going to happen with a Haven conference. We're going to be taught some things. We need to learn some things. Here's some testimony that we need to hear. We're going to have a lecture, Reformation Day lecture. We're going to have something like that. Number one, those things are fairly rare now. And they're fairly rare because attendance is often so poor. Well, why is that? Wow, you know, we're busy. We got a lot going. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I see the crowds. You see the crowds at the ball games. I know we're busy. We've got a lot to do. But why is it? We don't we don't have time for things when it comes to God? And the answer is we're idolaters. I'm not going to belabor the point, beloved, but if we can't admit we're idolaters at our core, at our heart, and we excuse it, and we hide it, and we bristle when it's pointed out, oh, we do. One of the things that is so condemning of us is that when we actually have idols that are just unmistakable, even by everyone else, not even now the idols that maybe only we can see, but the idols that everybody else sees, repeated drunkenness, alcoholism, being under the bondage of drugs, even prescription drugs. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it's ruining our life and our marriage and our kids and everything. And we're afraid to go talk to the person and we don't want anybody to talk to us. What? That's not idolatry. How dare you? We can't even admit that, let alone all the little idols we have squirreled away. You see that when you open your closet or your refrigerator or your garage door? Do you see the idols? Do you? Do I? And the answer is we don't. And that's part of the problem of why then we can't. Well, we really don't see things the way God sees them. 
If you think that our God minimizes idolatry, you are gravely mistaken and it's your idolatry. It's part of it. Please open the Scriptures. Please. And don't forget to read the prophets. Read through the Kings and the Chronicles. Read through the Psalms. Read, read everywhere. It's almost on every page of Scripture. What was the besetting sin of the people of God? It was idolatry. It was idolatry at Mount Sinai. You saw what God did. Time and time again, there's stories about the idolatry, and we all know the demise of Israel and then Judah, who watched it happen to Israel. They watched it happen. And God sent prophets. And the message of the prophets was very simple. You're idolaters. Did you notice that both passages of Scripture opened with those words? This is the Word of God to you. And how many of us, when we got to that point, said, oh yeah, that's the Word of God to somebody else. That's the Word of God to the reprobate. That's the Word of God to those certain people. Oh yeah, that's the Word of God to the Old Testament people. They, they actually had idols. So we, don't, we don't have that. Oh, we are so far away from understanding what's going on. Here's what God thinks of idolatry. We read it. The man that has idols is a fool, and his idol is the proof of his folly. And his folly is, there is only one God, and no idol will survive his wrath. They all will be burned up, all of them. All of your idols and my idols are all going into the flames. And if you think that God only judges the lands out there, then you have the whole history to reckon with that God used two idolatrous nations, very wicked nations, to judge his own people. And if you think the judgment was light, well, look at the numbers. Look at the numbers of the people of the children of Israel that came into the land of Canaan. We're talking millions here. Now look at the number that was left after Babylon got done with Judah. Three, four thousand? Three, four thousand after a couple hundred years. That millions should have been even multiple millions. How many were saved as a remnant? And even some of those were idolaters. Just a handful. What happened to all the rest? The answer is they were idolaters, and God judged them for idolatry. He destroyed them along with their idols. said, fine, you're going to trust in the gods of heaven? You're going to trust in Baal and Moloch? You're going to trust in all these other gods? Fine. See if they can save you. Do we realize that's what God does to us? Do we realize that explains much of our life? So we're getting now the divine must. You understand you can look at that must from a couple of different points of view. All of them really have to do with God, but one is who God is. Why is idolatry not tolerated? Why did God do what He did? And please do not minimize that. Read Jeremiah. Watch him weeping. God slaughtered millions in the history of Israel because they refused to see their idolatry. They refused to give up their idols. They refused. God sent a prophet. They killed him. And look at the excuses. There's so many excuses, it's unreal. God sends the prophet. They say, well, we, were, we were delivered to do these kinds of things. 
In other words, our God is so gracious, He allows us to live in our idolatry. That was the, that was the excuse. Well, God is the only God. Now, just think about that. That means that God, who is the only God, can't have any other gods because there are none. They simply cannot and will not and may not exist. And that's the point that was made in Psalm 49 that we read. Do we understand what God is doing? This is the world He has made. This is the world that He has created. Oh yes, man sinned and filled it with sin. And his sin is expressed by the fact that he filled the world with idols. They're everywhere. Everywhere you look. The economy is one big idol. Politics. All of it. And God won't have that in His world. This is His world. And so he's coming to judge the idolatry of men. You may see that as the one great sin of mankind. This is his depravity. He hates God, and therefore he cleaves to idols. So what's worth keeping? Well, the Scriptures say there's really nothing worth keeping. Man has turned everything in this world to an idol. It's all got to go. It all has to be burned up. There's nothing going to survive and then because he knows his church, we say to ourselves, yeah, well, that's way off in the future. I don't have to worry about that. Yes. Do we understand what fools we are? Do we understand how foolish it is that we spend so much of our time and energy accumulating more stuff? Bigger houses, faster cars, more pleasure, and there is not one thing that goes with you. And the worst part of it is that if we are idolaters and we do not confess and repent of our idolatry, then we go into the pit and we perish with our idols. That's what God thinks of idols. Why? Well, He's the one true God. There's no place for a God beside Him. It's not just that He commands it. It's just that there is no place. There mayn't be. There won't be. It can't possibly be any otherwise. Man cannot have an idol. Besides that, then we talk about the kind of God He is. The Catechism points that out. The divine must is, you can't even make any representation of God. Do we understand who God is? And the answer is no, we don't. When we teach that God is transcendent and glorious in His transcendent, that He's a spirit, do we see how quickly we drag Him down from heaven? We ought to shudder at all the times men say God can't do this or doesn't do that. No. You see, you can only worship this God as He is and according to how He is. It's impossible otherwise. And then, then there's a whole other dynamic that we have to reckon with, and that is God has made one image of Himself, and that's Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. That is the only representation of God that you may worship because He is God and He alone is God. So do you see now perhaps why God sees it the way it is, especially with us? Why His concern isn't so much the Assyrians and the Babylonians? Because He took them out too. Pretty quickly. But He endured long with His people. He endured long with them. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. Why? 
Why was God so concerned with His people Israel and Judah? Why was His judgments of them so harsh? And the answer is because all of your idols and all of my idols and all of their idols were an offense to Jesus Christ. You see, all of our idols are really man's expression that he can save himself. It's true even of us. Why do we have all these things? Why are we idol factories? Why are they stacked up in our garage and closets? Well, for a couple of reasons. One of them is because we don't have much to be thankful for. We may confess God saves us from our sins, but our real sin, our essential sin, the sin that cleaves to us in everything we do, idolatry, is nowhere near admitting what it really is. We have so buried that sin and hid it and obfuscated it that, that we bristle when it's pointed out by the prophets, when it's pointed out by the elders, or it's pointed out by a friend who is a prophet. Well... That's our God then. Our God hasn't really saved us from that sin. Our, our God isn't a God who really forgives a whole lot. He, he forgave some sins, but do you understand our God is the God who forgave the sin of worshiping another God? And the implication of that is only God can save. God brings us up time and time again. The gods, they can't do anything. That's why men worship them. Why do men make gods? Because the gods can't do anything. <laughs> they can't respond. They can't punish me when I do wrong. They can't judge the earth. They didn't make the earth. They can't judge the earth. That's what man wants. Man wants to save himself. And we do the same thing. We can form and fashion a God who in the end doesn't save us. We save ourselves. An idol is always the work of man's hands. And whether those work of man's hands are made of gold or maybe his salvation. Why do we have so many idols? Because maybe secretly we think we're saving ourselves. Don't say it can't happen, doesn't happen. Not in a Reformed church. Oh, it does. It's because we think I've saved ourselves. We think God's just going to overlook all of our idolatry because I come to church twice on Sunday and there's other people don't. Or because I spend a lot of money on Christian school tuition. So God's, God's going to overlook my... No, no, uh-uh. You don't understand. Our God is the God who won't tolerate any images except Jesus Christ. Now, that should bring us to the only possibility here. The only possibility from being burned up with our idols, because that's what we're talking about, the idol worshiper will be burned up with his idols. There, there's no changing of that. Does it matter if that idol's just a little small one that you got squirreled away in your stuff like Rachel did, or these big giant Buddhas? And if you want to know why, read the passages that we read again and take note how God says, your idol is your doctrine. <laughs> it's an amazing statement. Your idol is your doctrine. And, and that idol tells you the God you worship. And it also tells you what you think of yourself versus God. It's all there. So, is there any possibility here in not being consumed or even escaped from our idolater that is in us? 
And the answer is no, there's not. Not even repentance and confession is in you. Again, read the passage that we read where the psalmist points that out. It is not in man to know his way. Now the way is confession and repentance. The way is to acknowledge my idolatry, repent of that, and find forgiveness and refuge in a merciful and gracious God. But only in His grace and mercy, not in me again. Why is that? The answer again is who God is. God is the God who saves, the only one who saves. And if you want to minimize repentance and forgiveness that's going on in the name of Christ, remember that that is not your work, it's God's work. And then ask yourself, what will God do to affect repentance in us? Well, to read Scripture is to answer that question. He will destroy us. He'll destroy His people. Now, that destruction, fortunately, is just the destruction of the old man, but that's what God does. That's how He saves. That's how He delivers us. Now, if we truly understand that, then we truly will recognize there's no place for idols. And we are idolaters. And our God is the God who delivers us from that idolater. And He does that all Himself. That's the truth of the second commandment. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, forgive us our idolatry. It is great. We would pretend that we have no idols, but our houses and our lives and our hearts are filled with them. We produce them as fast as they are destroyed. And we are thankful, O Lord, that one has come who had no idols, who worshipped and served Thee perfectly, and in His obedient perfection even unto death has delivered us from the damnation and the condemnation that we deserve along with the whole rest of the world for our, our idolatry. We, we love Thee, O Lord, and we are thankful for Thy Word. And may that Word change and affect our heart day after day so that we love Thee and serve Thee in all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.